0: Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. We are going to get started here. Are you ready to go? Yeah. Yeah. Kick it off. Well, we're going to kick it off with your stuff. With my stuff? Yeah.
1: Okay. <laughs> sailing right here for the camera. Everybody take their seats. Buckle up. Here we go. All right. So welcome, everybody. Great to see you again tonight. Got another great crowd. And before Father Pat gets started with his presentation, I've got a couple of housekeeping things that I've got to go over with everybody. Hope everybody had a good weekend and... It's just weird being here on a Monday night, but hey, we're here on a Monday night and that's all that matters, right? So there you go. It's gonna be great. Uh, First of all, we have our eight who are going to be fully initiated in the Catholic Church here with us tonight. And I have good news. I have another couple, both of them, would like to become fully initiated into the Catholic Church and I'm gonna meet with them on Sunday and you'll see them next week. So there we go, 10, we're up to 10. So 10's the number. So shoot for 12, Chris. 16? You can do 12. Okay, you can do 12. We'll start with 12. We'll start with a dozen. All right. So so there's two more out there. Two more out there. Yeah, at least. All right. So some of the uh, new candidates who were not here last week, I'd just like to go around very briefly and introduce yourself. Very briefly, Oliver, don't be scared. Okay. You go first.
0: (laughs) I'm Oliver. I don't need a money. Yeah, you do. I really don't, but uh, I teach and Jackson, uh, new to the Wadsworth area, and am
1: getting married in 19 days. Excellent. Wow. Great to have you, Oliver, yeah. Um, you can do it, Abby. You can do it. I have to stand up. Three sentences. <laughs> Three sentences. OK. My name's Abby. Um, I'm friends with the Linker family. I go to the chapel in Wathworth over here, but I've been coming to Sacred Heart a lot, and I really like the environment, and I want to learn more about school. All right. The there book. she is. Abby. And Sage, oh yay, here comes the deacon. Hi, I'm Sage, um, I've been going here for about a year now, and I attend the like youth group, and I've been really interested in Catholicism, so I would like to be Catholic. Yay, yeah. let's hear it for these newbies. All right, very good. Very quickly, I want to introduce just a couple of the, my team members who are here tonight. Uh, Christopher, stand up, introduce yourself very quickly. Hi everybody, I'm Chris for, I
0: don't know, a while.
1: Oh, quite a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you'll be hearing a lot from Chris. Lauren David? <laughs> <You know>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a little longer. No, yeah. yeah. Okay. And you'll meet some of the other team members next week. So there you go. Every week we'll meet some more people. That, and uh, so remember at... Every session, when you come in, there's a prayer box over there, that wood prayer box. If you have a petition or someone that you would like us to pray for and for us to intercede, uh, pray to God. Uh, fill out one of those little sticky notes and put it in there. And even at the, the break and at the end, I'll go over there and swipe them and give them to Father when we say our final prayer. Okay, that's, that's very important. We want to pray for your loved ones and your friends uh, that need the prayers. So if, there's any, uh, if you need anything else contact me anything that comes up let me know email me call me pull me aside uh i'll be more than happy to help you out and uh let's get the show on the road here you go father yeah thank you hang on i just had a thing i had to say oh um yeah
0: this uh we talked about last week that for any of the cradle catholics who would like a a hard copy of their own of the becoming catholic manual if that's you, if you would like us to make one for you to print it off, um, just sign your name on this uh, little yellow uh, pad of paper over here, and um, we will try and have that accomplished for you um, maybe next Monday. I don't know. No guarantees. <laughs> yeah. All the priests were going on retreat starting tomorrow, so the priests are gonna, all of the diocese are going to be gone tomorrow through Friday. So gotta pray for all the priests but it's gonna be a busy weekend I just I I no guarantees that come come uh, next Monday we'll have it all done I've got three weddings this weekend so I know one's in Columbus one is their wedding Eric and Christina so the next time we see them they're gonna be married this is very cool so yeah and then uh... how many days Oliver? 19, 19 days we're doing their wedding at St. Francis Xavier Chaley's not coming tonight? Well, you get to meet his wonderful fiance maybe next Monday, maybe. All right. So uh, friends, let us uh, enter in first uh, by praying. So again, remember as Catholics, we always start every prayer, every mass, every liturgy with the sign of the cross. And again, the sign of the cross is a entering into the means by which God saved us and touched us and has sought to redeem our bodies. So let us begin our prayer tonight in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God Almighty, we give you thanks and praise for this incredibly beautiful day you gave us, Lord. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have entered into the mess of humanity, that you've entered into our story, that you robed yourself in human flesh and frailty in order to wage war against the ancient foe, that you would rescue us. Lord, tonight we pray that as uh, we dive into the gospel, Into the news that has changed everything, Lord, that we would have open hearts to hear this message as if for the first time. Lord, give us the grace we want to be overwhelmed by this story, by what you've done for us. And we make this prayer, Jesus, in your mighty and holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So my talk tonight for this second night of becoming Catholic is called The News that changes everything and boy oh boy do we need some good news right now in our world we we've been living through some crazy times amen amen Amen. this is this is where we participate yeah okay we've been living through some very crazy times the last couple years uh uh if you remember we had uh this going on um and talk about something that interrupted everything right it's interrupted everything and thanks be to God, we are, like, in a new season of normal, right? Thanks be to God for all this. But it wasn't just this. It was political unrest and chaos in our city streets that was just seemingly unprecedented. The country, even more so than it was even two years ago or even last year, the country's seemingly more divided um, now than it has ever been. There's just such chaos and turmoil everywhere and everywhere you look, um, we're living through some insane, insane times. And the world, like in a way that it never has before, is just desperate and crying out for hope. It's crying out for hope. This is um, this is the fifth year in a row, according to sociologists and, and demographers. This is the fifth year in a row where the average life expectancy of the United States continues to go down. It just hasn't happened since 1917, which only you know two years ago we all suddenly became aware of what happened in 1917, right? The end of World War I, or the beginning of World War I, and the Spanish flu, right? But this time, like, why are people dying? Mitch Album, he wrote an article. Why is dying young becoming more of a fad? Why is it becoming a thing? They're called deaths of despair, is what they're calling it. Deaths of despair. Suicide, cirrhosis of the liver, and opioid. Overdose, that we are literally losing the will to live. We're desperate and crying out. We need hope. We need a new vision to see our reality properly. We need hope. And I know, like within the church, I know for maybe us who, who are Christians, all of this feels so daunting. Like, how will the world, how will the culture ever, if ever, get back on the right track? I know this feels so daunting. How will anything change? But like this is as unprecedented as this time feels, and it is in some ways, it's not as though this is like a a unique challenge for the church or for the gospel. Like I'm thinking about St. Paul. I love St. Paul. I think about St. Paul quite a bit. I think about St. Paul, like the daunting challenge he had to evangelize the nations, the pagan nations, right? I think about Paul coming to Ephesus, for example, right? We read about Paul in uh, his book, his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesus, at the time of the ancient world, Ephesus was home of the great temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. This temple to the the goddess Artemis, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And inside this temple, it enshrined this massive, massive image of the goddess, right? Ephesus, at the time, it was known for its silver production, especially um, silver statuary, right? It made all these little um, idols, these small little statues of the Greek god Artemis. And this was, the, this was the, the, the bulwark of the economy of Ephesus, and Paul comes into Ephesus to preach against this idolatry, to preach against this goddess, right? We have in our own time, in our own world, idols of our own, right? We don't really have a lot of people worshiping Artemis these days, you know? I mean, if they do, they should probably, you know, be here as well. Um, but... Yeah, Thomas Aquinas, he outlined these, these gods, uh, these idols a long time ago. He says, we worship the gods of wealth and pleasure and power and honor. So here's, this is what the Temple of Artemis looked like. This is not an actual photo. Um, <laughs> massive, massive structure, massive structure, hundreds of of 60-foot-high columns made of pure marble, 400 feet long. It dwarfed the Pantheon, or the uh, the Parthenon in Athens. Massive structure. You want to know what's left of the Temple of Artemis? You Want to see what it looks like today? That. You know why? Because Paul unleashed the gospel there. He unleashed the gospel. He had an explosive message for the Ephesians. He had an announcement to make. He called it the kerygma, right? This proclamation, this this news that he had to share. It was was a message of power, of explosive power. He called it the euangelion, right? It's Greek for, it's where we get the word gospel, right? It's so much more. We're going to talk about this tonight. It's so much more than good news, if you've heard that before. Right? He had a message that was explosive, because the gospel, this message, this, this proclamation, the charisma it's news that just changes everything. It's, cha- it's changed everything in history. It's the world's only hope. So tonight, as we start this journey of becoming Catholic, some of us come from places where, I don't know, we've had a long history uh, walking with the Lord and being disciples, and some of us really haven't, and even for our cradle Catholics, right? We've been coming to Mass for years and years and years and years, but like, my experience has been as a priest, so I'll just put it this way. Every Sunday I get up, or Deacon gets up. Usually every Sunday it's Deacon. Uh, he proclaims the gospel. And it goes like this Deacon, what do you say at the end of the gospel? You say, the you've, gospel of the Lord. To which the people respond. Yeah, it's, that's usually about what it sounds like to me as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, and some of you even got the wrong words right there. So. The gospel of the Lord, praise to you, Lord Jesus. Is there donuts today? That's usually what it sounds like. That's usually what it sounds like. The gospel of the Lord, it should be praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Like, it should be explosive in joy. But we're just like, ho-hum, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, right? I think most Catholics have never heard the gospel. We've heard the gospels, but I bet we probably haven't heard the gospel that's what we want to do tonight. That's what we want to do tonight. I want to share the gospel as the foundation for all of us. If we don't have this story as the foundation, we're going to miss everything. We're going to miss everything. And in sharing the gospel, I want us to be reminded of the why, of the reasons why we should have hope and confidence in what God's doing. But like God right now, he's not up there nervous. He's like, oh gosh, myself, like, what should I do right now? Like. He's Lord of history. like He's not nervous and neither should we. So this is where I want to begin. I want to begin here in Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So first, a word about this word gospel, euangelion, right? This isn't originally a a religious or Christian or, or Jewish word. This is a word that's, like, appropriated from the Greco-Roman military world, right? So in the time of Caesar, right, Caesar was Lord, Caesar, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. When Caesar would conquer a new territory, when he would have a major victory in battle, he would send angeloi, messengers, to the various parts of the empire with the good news, euangelion, that a battle has been won, victory's been established, Right? That's what he would do. So this word, Paul says, when the first Christians are looking for a word to describe this message they have, like, what should we, what do do we have to say? They borrowed a military word, euangelion, good news, conquering news. There's a new king on the throne, right? This word, euangelion, Paul says it is power. The Greek word here is dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. This is explosive news that wherever this gospel, wherever this message is proclaimed, things blow up. The enemy's stronghold is blown up. That's what Paul is saying. And he's saying, I'm not ashamed of this. I'm not ashamed of this message. Here's the best analogy I've heard to kind of begin grasping what we mean by the good news, the euangelion. So if you can imagine that we are not Americans, and it's not the year 2022. We are French. gonna take a drag of your cigarette. <laughs> OK, very good. OK, so we're French, and it's not the year 2022. It's June 7th, 1944, and you wake up, and the newspaper boy throws the newspaper in through the window, smashes through the window, sacre bleu. Newspaper boy, I'm going to kill you. OK, so newspaper comes upon your, on your table. You look at the headline, and you see this. First thing, you are shocked that it's in English. Second thing, (laughs) invasion, allies land in France, smash ahead, fleet, planes, shootists, battling Nazis. That's parachutists for those who are playing at home. What are are you reading? What is this headline of? Someone tell me. D-Day. D-Day, the landing at Normandy. Now imagine you're you're a Frenchie and you've just experienced this, you've been experiencing the Nazi occupation, everything in Europe has been just blown to smithereens, totalitarianism has taken over things, millions of people, dead piles of corpses, and you see this, do you think you go, huh, I wonder what else happened yesterday? (laughs) Do you think you'd react like that? No. No, I don't think so. This is not just news. This is unbelievable news. This is overwhelming, life-changing news. Someone has come for us. Like we've been rescued. Someone has come to fight on our behalf. The gospel is infinitely more so than this. It's infinitely more so than this. We can break it down into a few parts. This is what we're looking at. Okay, landing beaches, Normandy. We'll come back to this. Da 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 da. Okay. First part is the goodness of creation. We're talking about this message, this proclamation. We can break it down into these four parts. The goodness of creation, number one. The second part, sin and its consequences. The third part, God's response to our sin. And the fourth part, our response to what God has done. We can break this down further by reducing it to one word. Created, captured, rescued response. Created, captured, rescued response. You try. Yeah perfect 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 so you can get that in your head i want to zero in our attention especially this night on numbers 2 and 3 sin and its consequences and god's response to our sin because if we don't get those two parts right we're going to miss everything all right but first let's look at number 1 the goodness of creation the goodness of creation the grace that we want to ask for when we're contemplating the goodness of creation is to be filled with wonder and awe wonder and awe at the God who's so massive and so incredible. It's so crucial for us to understand as Catholics, as Christians, it's so crucial to understand properly those initial chapters of Genesis, right? What's actually going on there? Is there really a talking snake and do they eat an apple? What's going on there? I, I don't know. Is this all just mythology? Are we supposed to believe this? Okay. If we miss Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, we're going to miss everything, right? Because, like, the, the genre, the genre of this text, it's, it's theologically inspired poetry. What I mean by that is it's true. It's true. It's just not true in the same way that a newspaper article is true. It's not conveying its truth in the same way, does that make sense? Right? That's, why, that's how we differentiate and that's how we understand different genres. Right? You don't you don't wear the same clunky lenses when you're reading poetry versus when you're reading biography. You interpret it differently based on the genre. Right? So Genesis is theologically inspired poetry. It's it's not explaining how things happen, but but the meaning, the why behind the things. And to the secular atheistic materialistic universe, to that worldview, this universe is it's the nothing but worldview, right? It's nothing but energy and matter. It's nothing but atoms and molecules. There's no meaning. There's no good or evil. There's no right or wrong. It's just this collection of atoms talking to these collections of atoms, right? That's all it is. There's no meaning, there's no purpose, nothing. It's a very bleak worldview. It's a very bleak worldview. And into that world comes the biblical story. Genesis is painting a very different worldview, right? A very different picture. Genesis is answering the question, why is there something rather than nothing? When we look at this whole universe, why why is there something rather than nothing at all? The answer that Genesis gives us is because there's a God. There's one God, and he's good, and he created everything out of nothing, freely and effortlessly, by the sheer power of his word. Everything comes into being by God speaking, not through some... Battle, like in all the other ancient Near Eastern myths, right? I don't know if in your Religion 101 classes when you took them in college, if you ever came across this that said, well, the, the story of creation in the Bible is basically just one among many ancient Near Eastern myths. Baloney. Baloney. There's nothing like the Christian story, nothing like the Judeo-Christian story, right? The, you had the, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the, the story's name. The Epic of Gilgamesh. Why that wasn't on the tip of my tongue, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I was just reading it this morning. OK. You had this great battle between Marduk and, this, and, and Tiamat, and the body of one god is ripped apart, and that's how you get creation. Or in the Norse myths, you've got this great ox licking this like block of salt, OK? And the ox's tongue in the spill creates the material universe, which is basically the same as Genesis, right? <laughs> I mean, there's an ox in there somewhere, right? No, it's nothing like it. It's totally different, completely different. Everything comes into being because God, who is good, creates it by the sheer power of his word. Everything that exists is good insofar it shares in his being. And at the highlight of everything he made is the human person, made in his image and likeness, in our complementarity, masculinity, and femininity. All of this, right? Together they image him. I want to zero in on one passage in particular from Genesis. One particular that has given me a window into this experience of awe and wonder. Okay, let me go back. Genesis 1.16. Genesis 1.16 says this. God made the two great lights. The greater light to govern the day, which is the? And the lesser light to govern the night, which is the? Very good class. And then there's a semicolon. And the author of Genesis writes... And he made the stars also. He made the stars also? You don't seem impressed. Okay, what this, okay, this line, this is like the greatest throwaway line in the history of literature. Like, do you know how many stars there are? (laughs) Apparently not, by your, (laughs) he's yelling at us, I'm getting nervous. Okay. (laughs) Here's the question. Who is this God who offhandedly, semicolon, made the stars also? Here's the way we're going to start getting our head wrapped around this. Our sun is one of about 200 billion, that's with a B, stars in our galaxy. That's a big number, right? Okay. And there are approximately 300 billion galaxies in the visible universe, each with about 200, give or take-ish, billion stars in it. This, by the way, these are not stars. Those are galaxies. This is called the Hubble Deep Field. If astronomers, they, they, they aimed the Hubble Space Telescope at a patch of sky that's no bigger than the size of a dime held at arm's length, a completely black paint patch of sky. And they let it sit there for about a month, and it absorbed light. And they're like, what are we going to find? This is the image that comes back. Okay, you, just, you still don't seem impressed. Okay, let's. I'm trying, Lord, I'm trying. Okay, think of it this way. Our sun is a small star, relatively speaking. In our sun, you can fit about 960,000 earths. Uh, okay, so like those, you know, the history where everything that has ever happened happens, right? 960,000 earths can fit in our sun. Now, the biggest star that's uh, been discovered up to this point, it's a star that they named Canis Majoris, which is Latin for big dog. It's a great name. Into Canis Majoris, you can fit seven quadrillion Earths. Now, the question you should be asking right now is, what is a quadrillion? <laughs> OK, I'll help you. Here's a quadrillion. Here's where we're going to ha- wrap our heads around it. A million seconds ago, hop in a time machine a million seconds ago. You're zapping back to about 11 and a half days ago. That's a million seconds ago. A billion seconds ago, this is where things are going to get really, really uncomfortable, It's 31 years ago. OK? A trillion seconds ago is 31,000 years ago. And one quadrillion seconds ago is 31 million years ago. You can fit seven quadrillion. Earths into one star, right? This is one of hundreds of billions of billions of billions of stars in the universe that's 46 billion light years across, never expanding. And this was made by a god who just like, yeah, I'll make the sun, I'll make the moon, and I'll make the stars also. (laughs) Let's look at this to get a better sense of the scale. (laughs) The heck? Who is this God? What's the point? In the midst of this universe that is so massive, that the creature that this amazingly powerful God most loves, that which he is most interested in, isn't us. It's you. 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 Like, but you by name, like his eyes are focused on you. Your life right now is in his hands. So relax. That's the point. But that begs the question, if that's true, if this God is so massive, so powerful, if he loves me the most, more than Saturn, more than the local cluster of galaxies, if he loves me the most, more than pandas and kittens, which is true, what the hell happened? And I mean that. Why is everything in our world so messed up? This brings us to the second point. This brings us to the second point. Why is there so much suffering in our world? Honestly, friends, up until a few years ago, this was a part of the gospel that I just did not grasp. This is what we might call, if the gospel is the good news, this is the bad news, right? I don't think I grasp, I don't think most of us grasp the bad news. If you don't know the bad news, then the good news is just meh news. But the bad news is beyond horrific. It's worse than your worst nightmare. And if we grasp it, we should taste, we should experience Despair and hopelessness. Hopelessness. So to understand the bad news, we have to understand the enemy. So we're going to look at this. We're going to ask the question: Who is the enemy? Why did he rebel? What is his primary tactic? What's his primary lie? What is his end game or goal for you and me? And what are the horrific consequences of sin? These are the the questions we're looking at. So first, who is the enemy? What's his identity? A lot of Catholics, a lot of Christians, a lot in the world, outside the church even, live with a sort of Marvel Universe view of the cosmos, a sort of theodrama, that you've got Jesus versus Satan, baby. It's a grand showdown, and I, like, I really hope that, that Jesus guy wins, because he seems like the good one, right? Because that Satan guy looks scary. Okay, this is what I think a lot of people think, that you've got the good God versus this other really powerful bad guy called Satan. This is not reality. This is not anywhere close to reality. The enemy is not a co-equal divinity. He's not a God on par with the Lord. The enemy is a creature. He's a fallen angel. He's a creature. There's one God and he's good and everything he made is a creature, including Lucifer, who is an angel who rebels, right? The enemy, like I said, is this fallen angel we, and we hear in the, in the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, we hear in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, we hear this, that the enemy being described as this dragon, says that his tail sweeps a third of the stars from the sky. Now again, the book of Revelation, it's poetic in its imagery, it's using symbolism. Stars in the Bible are also synonymous symbolically with angels, I'll prove it to you, at Christmas time. You put up a Christmas tree, and on the top of the Christmas tree, you put a star, raise your hand, you put an angel, raise your hand, look at that, there, there's the proof, that's all you need, (laughs) there you go. But that's how the church fathers interpreted the scriptures, that stars and angels are synonymous. So you have, what the Bible's telling us is that a third of the heavenly host, a third of the angels that God created, rebelled in union with Lucifer. And said, We will not serve, right? And scripture is telling us that the enemy is not just the devil. It's this fallen army, this multitude, these fallen angels whose wills and minds have been so bent on evil, right? That's who we're fighting. That's who the enemy is. It's not this person, that politician, that party. It's not any human being. The enemy is the enemy. Boy, we have to remember that in our day and age. The enemy is the enemy. Right. St. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, he says, our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is with principalities and powers. Those are names of angelic ranks. He's saying our battle is with this fallen angel army. Yes, led by Lucifer. The scriptural reason, Do you know, the scriptural reason for the rebellion of the enemy. I'll give you a hint. It's not pride. Many of us, probably cradle Catholics, we probably all grew up hearing that it's the sin of pride. It's why he, he rebelled, because of pride. No, his sin was pride, but that's not the reason why he rebelled. Scripture tells us, in the Book of Wisdom, it says this, that through the envy of the devil, death entered the world. And those who are in his possession experience it, is what the Book of Wisdom says. That what motivated the rebellion was envy. Right, what's envy? Envy is different than jealousy. Jealousy says, I want what you have, right? which can be a good thing. Right? Like, I want your work ethic. I want, you know, fill in the blank. It, it could be a motivating factor, right? Envy is always and everywhere a deadly sin. It's evil because envy says, I want what you have and I don't want you to have it. Right? It's a sadness at the, 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 the goodness of another. So here's the question. Who is the devil envious of? Again, I'll give you another hint. It's not God. It's us. Us. Think about that for a second. That this creature, this angel, created more perfect and beautiful than every other creature, looks at humanity, and is filled with envy. So where do we get this? Well, according to saints and mystics and the tradition of uh, the church, what we hear is this, is at the beginning, before God created the material universe, he showed the angels some semblance of the plan he was going to enact, that he was going to create this material world and fill it and populate it with Material beings and at the culmination at the high point all of this he would make this being called a human person Who's the hybrid of both matter and spirit that we both have body and soul that we straddle two worlds if you will right? We straddle the earthly dimension and the heavenly dimension Right he told the angels he showed them that this was the plan and further that the angels would be servants of these creatures It'd be like God saying to humanity. Okay, you see that gnat down there That thing that's going in your ear, you see that thing? Your whole mission is to serve that gnat. What? No. (laughs) You know, like, that is something like what the angels felt. And Lucifer in particular was like, absolutely not. No, you should not become man because God showed them a semblance of the Incarnation. He said, no, you should not become man. You should join your nature to an angel. You should become an angel, not a human being. And so out of envy for God calling these creatures into being, that we would be raised to such a high dignity, in particular that God would create the woman and would unite himself to her in her womb, the devil said, I will not serve. Non serviam in the Latin, right? Devil spoke Latin. Of course he did. Non servium, I will not serve this mission. I will not serve. And he goes into rebellion. Who does he go to war against? Not God. Because he's God, I can't win against God. He goes to war against the creature that God loves the most, which is us, us. His conflict is with us because we're the creature that God loves the most. Now, what's his strategy? His primary tactic is to lie. Jesus calls him the liar from the beginning calls him the accuser, right? His name's Satan. His names are significant. Satan comes from Hosatanas in the Greek, which means the accuser. Devil comes from diabolane, which means to scatter apart the divider. Those are his names. He's the accuser and the divider. Ultimately, he's the liar, right? What does he lie about? He lies about the identity of God, primarily. right? We see this right in the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. But the serpent said to the woman about the fruit. He, she, see, God planted those trees right in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, do not eat this fruit. I give you every, every other tree, right? Every other tree to eat, just not this one. The serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's going on here? Like the devil's seduction to Eve and Adam, it was not a temptation to just outright atheism, right? They, they couldn't have been seduced in that way. It was an invitation. It was a sort of drive-by accusation, this invitation to get Adam and Eve to begin considering perhaps God is not who you think he is. Right? This is what the enemy's doing. No, God knows that when you eat of that, you're going to be like him. Who, by the way, in this story at this point, is already in the likeness of God? Adam and Eve, right? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. They are already created in God's likeness, right? Here, the enemy is saying, you will be like God. In other words, he's holding out on you. There's something that would make you even more beautiful and perfect. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to have it. You think he's good? You think he's trustworthy? No. He's keeping you down. He's not your father. He's your enemy. He's your rival. He's a competitor. He doesn't want your good. He doesn't want you to flourish. If you don't believe me that this is the enemy's lie or tactic, how many of us, don't raise your hand, but how many of us have heard, like, God, if you really love me, you would let this happen, or you would give me this, or you would have prevented this from happening? It's the enemy. Genesis chapter 3, it's like game film, right? Professional teams, professional athletes, even high school athletes, shoot. Before they have a competition, they watch the film of the opponent that they're playing in order to see how the the plays that the opponent runs, right? Like what kind of defense do they run? What are their trick plays, if any, right? Genesis 3, this is God allowing us to see not simply what happened a long time ago. This is God allowing us to see what happens every time. Like this is the same play the enemy runs over and over and over again. This is how he gains territory into our lives. He's constantly trying to get us to believe that God's not who we think he is, that he's not trustworthy, that he's not good. And shoot, if he could seduce Adam and Eve in paradise where there wasn't death or sickness or injury or job loss, where there, no one had, like the first death hadn't happened. If he could seduce them there, like, what about us? In this fallen world where, like, where we have funeral homes and people die unexpectedly and tragically, where there's sickness and disease and people get laid off of jobs, where there's cruelty and bullying and, and suicide, like, how much easier it is for him to get us to think, man, God, if you really love me, You would have stopped this. You would have given me this. You would have prevented this. Like a plaything. What's his end game? What's his goal? It's really simple. Really simple. We hear it in John chapter 10. Jesus says this. Speaking of the enemy, he calls him the thief. The thief, he says, has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's his goal for you it's his goal for your life he wants to destroy you he hates you with a passion you can't imagine he is sheer hate john paul ii said of the enemy he said have nothing to do with him he's not cute he doesn't have a pitchfork and horns he says have nothing to do with him he wants us to die believing the lie that happiness is found somewhere apart from god that's what he wants he wants us to, he, he he doesn't care if we become Satanists. He just wants us to worship anything but God. Right? Worship comes from the word worth ship. Whatever we think, whatever we put our highest worth, like that's like, that's where we think happiness will be found. He wants us to worship anything but God. To die in the lie that happiness is found apart from God. That's the enemy. He's not to be trifled with, he's not cute. He, like I said, he doesn't have horns. He's not benign. Okay. How are we doing so far? We have a few more minutes, and we're going to take a little stretch break. I see Deacon. I see he was giving me the eyes. I saw it. You were. I felt it. Okay. We're going to take a nosedive here in the, the bad news, and then we'll come out. Sound good? All right. I'm doing it anyway, if you don't like it. <laughs> All right. What are the horrific consequences of sin? Oftentimes you hear people say that the consequences of sin are that you are now separated from God, and that's true, but it's not the full picture. It's not the full picture. Because if you're like me, you think, okay, if I'm separated from God, I can just like, whoop, reattach, right? Just reattach, get reconnected. The, the big deal of, of sin, this consequence, is that we weren't just simply separated from God, that our race, by our own free choice, we we were taken captive. We were taken captive by an enemy, right? That we were stuck and helpless, hopeless, because we sold ourselves into slavery to powers that we couldn't contend with, right? Namely, sin with a capital S, death with a capital D, Satan and hell. Like We were powerless to these forces, taken captive, right? This is the imagery of the Bible, right? Those of you who've been Catholic, you've been at Mass during Advent, we sing that hymn, O come O come Emmanuel, and ransom what? Captive Israel. Ransom captive Israel. What are we singing about? We're singing about this. We were taken captive. Again, from that book of wisdom. Through the envy of the devil, death entered the world, and those who are in his possession experience it. Right, this is the situation. We tend to think of sin as things that I do or things that I don't do, right? Sins of omission, sins of commission. But for St. Paul, he wrote sin with a capital S. He described it as a dominion, which is another way of saying like a government, a awful, tyrannical government that is everywhere and always pressing itself upon you, making itself felt, hemming you in, affecting you at every turn. That's what how St. Paul describes sin. He says it has like there's like a lordship to it that we're enslaved in regard to this. Like if you don't believe me, again, no show of hands, but has anybody here besides me ever done something that you hate doing, that you know is wrong, that you don't want to do, and yet you do it anyway? <laughs> yeah, like like 5 hours ago, right? Like <laughs> Uh, this morning, right? Why? Because the lordship of sin presses itself upon us. And secondly, death. Like you are going to die. You are going to die. You are utterly helpless to prevent it. We might stave it off, right? We might be able to delay it. But there's a lordship to death. Like death has this it, it masquerades like an all-conquering bully. There's like this sort of godlike quality to death. That I will consume everything, death says. Death comes for everyone, and you can't stop it. The image that I think really helps capture this reality of the consequences of sin is the image of a human trafficker, a human traffic victim, This is the situation of the human race before Christ. This is the situation of the human race separated from Christ. That we've been taken, we've been apprehended by someone who does not love us, someone who wants to use us and abuse us. That this is our reality for the rest of our days. And it goes on and on and on. That's despair, and that's the bad news. And that's where we're going to pause before we hear the good news. So have a very depressing break, and we'll see you in like five minutes. (laughs) I didn't want this deacon wanted it for you. I'm sorry. (laughs) You ready for the good news? You ready for the good news? All right, good. Here we go. So the question is, What has God done in response to our predicament? What has God done in response to the situation of humanity being taken captive? What has he done in response to the trafficker? Because he doesn't leave us just simply in the clutches of the enemy. He doesn't leave us there. He acts in order to rescue us. And this is where, when we hear this, we are meant to have unshakable confidence That's the grace. That's what we're supposed to have in hearing this. And again, this is a part of the gospel that I just don't think most Catholics or most Christians have heard. All right. And there's way too much to talk about here. So I want to zero in on the incarnation, God becoming flesh, the incarnation and the passion of Jesus. These two events, the bookends of his life. So we look at a manger, we look at the incarnation, the beginning of Christ's life, and ask the question, Why did Jesus come? What's the purpose of the incarnation? What is he doing? Well, he's not in this picture, but what is he doing lying in the manger? Right? Every Christmas, we get our nativity scenes out. We put baby Jesus in the manger. What is God doing in flesh lying in the manger? Again, the Bible answers the question. The biblical answer to the question, what are you doing here, God? 1 John chapter 3, we hear this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to tell us to be nice. (laughs) Oh, wait, hang on, I'm sorry. Different version of the Bible. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason he appeared was to confront an enemy. According to the Bible, was to confront an enemy. Jesus says, as as he's about to begin his passion... He says this, now is the judgment of the world, now is the ruler of this world cast out. Right? He's describing the enemy as the ruler of this world. Right? He's saying, I've come to effect a mighty exorcism. It's essentially what he's doing. Over and over again in the gospel, we miss this as moderns, but over and over in the gospel, Jesus is, he basically heals people, drives out demons. Heals people, drives out demons. It's like, wake up in the morning, drive out demons, have lunch, heal someone, drive out another demon. Like, that's his schedule for the day. Right? He comes, to the, he comes into the synagogue in Capernaum, and there's a possessed man in the synagogue. The possessed, the demon, manifests himself. says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus, what have you come to do? What have you come here to do? Have you come here to destroy us? Do you know the answer to that question? It's yes. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I have. I've come to destroy you. Or this passage, Jesus asks, How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, for years, I heard Jesus in this parable and I got it 100% wrong. I thought he was talking about the enemy plundering my world. No, 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 no. Who is the strong man? Satan. What's his house? The world. What did Jesus call him? The ruler of this world. Who is the strong man? Satan. What's his house? The world. What are his goods? What are his possessions? Us. Us. So what does Jesus come to do? I've come to bind him and to free us. That's why he came. That's why he came. Back to these images of D-Day that I kind of skipped over. Okay, we see these soldiers, the landing craft, hitting the beach. We ask the question, someone might ask the question, what are they doing there? What are these soldiers doing? Like, What are they doing there? Multiple choice, ready. Option A, they heard that the coffee in France is so good, they had to come and have some for themselves. Oui, oui, no, no, right? Okay, option B. Uh, The sand on the shores of Normandy feels so good between your toes. You just got to try it out. That's why they have shoes on. Very good. Okay, so it's obviously not B. They all have go see the Mona Lisa on their bucket list. No. Obviously, that's not why they're there, right? Why are they there? To do what? To fight. They're there to fight. They're there to confront an enemy. Their being there presupposes a Hitler. The landing on Normandy presupposes a tyrant. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Do we know why Jesus landed? Why did the second person of the Trinity storm the beaches of creation? I show people this picture, and we're like, ah, I don't know. To be cute and tell stories and heal. No, no, no. It's the same reason. It should be just as obvious to us why he came, that the reason the second person of the Trinity landed, stormed the beaches of creation, was to confront an enemy. The incarnation presupposes a tyrant far worse than Hitler, right? The whole drama of the Old Testament is that God is sending his people a deliverer, Moses. Like the entire Old Testament Is building up to the Exodus, the great deliverance from slavery, or it's a commentary on the Exodus, right? The Old Testament is all about the great deliverer. Think the theme continues in the New Testament? Probably, right? Like, this is why he came to confront the enemy. He did not come to tell stories to do miracles. He came to fight for you and for me. To get the world back, right? The story of Christmas that we hear every year—we've covered. Like, I preached about this last year at Christmas Eve. I talked about all the glitter that comes on Christmas cards. I hate glitter so much. If you're thinking about sending me a Christmas card this year, if it has glitter on it, just don't. Okay? It just gets everywhere, and then it's with you always, and it's the worst. Okay? But we've covered the Christmas story in so much glitter, so many layers of. Saccharine sentimentality that we don't even see the story for what it is anymore. The Christmas story is not cute. It's not, right? Like the only person in the story who actually seems to know what's happening is Herod. Herod the Great, who responds to the announcement that the newborn king has been born. He responds not by, sending, by saying, Send him a gift. No, he, he responds by a military response Go wipe him out. He's the only one who seems to really get it. And we hear about, yeah, there's angels in the heaven singing glory to God in the highest. Oh, how nice with their harps. No, 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 no. The word that Luke uses is stratios. A whole stratios, an army of the heavenly host appears in the heaven. That's where we get the word strategic. It's a military word. So don't picture little angels with harps being like, glory to God in the highest. No, picture like. Like chest beaten, spear like slamming. Like picture of the movie 300. Like King Leonidas and the 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 battle. What was it, Thermopylae? Yeah, picture that. Picture that in the heavens, right? With more clothing, I guess. <laughs> but that's what's happening. It's a, it's battle imagery. It's battle imagery. He came to fight. He didn't, he's not merely kind. Thanks be to God that he is kind. He's not merely gentle. Thanks be to God he is gentle. Jesus is Lord. He's utterly unconquerable. He is a warrior. He's a warrior. Christmas is not cute. It's the beginning of a battle. You can put it this way. The gospel is the story of the invasion of one kingdom by a stronger kingdom. Right? God, Christianity is, is the story of how the rightful king landed, we might say landed in disguise behind enemy lines to subvert the enemy and get the world back. That's the story. That's the story. He's come to regain the world for his father. He came to liberate. How did he do it? How does he accomplish this? Let's skip ahead to the passion. Passion. So we from the beginning of his life to the end of his life, look at Jesus here on the cross. I'm going to ask you this question. Answer in your own head: Is Jesus on the cross? Is he the victim, or is he the aggressor? Is he the hunted, or is he the hunter? Like, is this the tragic, unfortunate conclusion to a life that was so filled with promise? Like, man, he was preaching some great homilies. I bet when he was older, he would have had some killer sermons. If only he had not been cut down in the prime of his life. Or was this the point? And if this was the point, why was this the point? These are the questions. Jesus on the cross, yes, he's a victim, but he's the aggressor. He's the aggressor. We have to be reminded who is on the cross. John in the beginning of his Gospel, says, in the beginning was the Word. Let's say a word about this word, Word. Okay. The word in Greek is logos. Logos. It means reason, rationality, mind, the ultimate meaning. Okay? It says, everything came into being through the Word. Everything. Canis majoris, the solar system, semicolon, the stars also. Everything in creation came into being through him. That's who he is. That's who he is. It says that word, it says, becomes flesh. The one through whom the universe, which is mind bogglingly big, that one becomes flesh. So you ask the question how do you get that God? On a cross. Where do you get a nail big enough to nail God on the cross? You don't. If he's on the cross, it's because he wanted to be on the cross. He wanted to be there. Why? Because he was hunting. Jesus is, as one of my priest friends put it, the ultimate ambush predator. What's an ambush predator? They're everywhere. They're all sorts of species. What do they do? They lie very still and motionless. They're in all sorts of environments. They lie very still. They camouflage. And what they do is they wait to attract their prey. The prey comes close. And when it's within striking distance, that's when they strike. That's an ambush predator. Jesus is the ultimate ambush predator. He's being so, God is so unbelievably creative. Like the mind of Satan could not have fathomed that God would have stooped to such depths of humility. He couldn't, his, his pride blinded him to this possibility. He was blind to this possibility that God would do this. And the events that we call the passion, what we see God doing is he's, he's camouflaging himself, right? He sweats blood He's sweating blood. He allows himself to be arrested. He allows himself to be chained and blindfolded and struck and spit upon. He allows his beard to be plucked. He allows himself to be scourged and led out to Calvary, carrying a cross. He allows himself to be stripped and crucified. He allows himself to be nailed to a cross. Why? because he's hunting, because he's going to war, because he's trying to attract the prey, the prey. All of this, he's lying still and motionless, helpless seemingly, pinned to the cross like bait. He's letting the enemy draw close. Who is the enemy? Death, sin, Satan. as if he wants to get swallowed by death because he wants to get into the belly of death to explode it from the inside out. Like, I picture Satan, like, I picture that moment on Calvary where Satan all of a sudden approaches Jesus on the cross. And he looks at him and he says, you know, I've been watching you for a while, and you've been doing some special things. Like I've seen, I, I've seen you do miracles, but I've seen miracles before. I've seen people raise people from the dead. I've seen all sorts of things. I remember Elijah. I remember Moses. And I hear him say, like, I remember, uh, like, I remember that woman over there. Your mom, she's pretty special too. But you know what? None of this matters, because in a few moments, you're going to be mine. I see Satan getting right up into Jesus' face because he's saying, no one escapes death. And that's where I see Jesus lift up his head with such power in his voice. He looks at Satan in the eye and says, it is finished. Like everything that you've been doing is finished. If you've ever seen uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, you, you know this moment, there's a very bizarre moment that you see in the Passion. At the very end, Jesus says, it is finished, he breathes his last, he dies. And then you see this, this, from the vantage point of heaven, you see this one raindrop beginning to form. It's like heaven is beginning to cry, and it falls to the earth, and it hits the ground, and it unleashes this explosion. Earthquake, animals, wind, like, it's just chaos on Calvary. And then the camera, like, it zooms down. You get this quick glimpse of hell. You see Satan alone on this mountaintop shrieking in anger and terror. And he's thinking, what the hell have I just done? He suddenly realizes what just happened. This is from the church father's. St. Ephraim in particular, St. Ephraim the Syrian, he said this, that death slew him by means of the body which he had assumed, but that same body proved to be the weapon with which he conquered death. Concealed beneath the cloak of his manhood, his Godhead engaged death in combat, but in slaying our Lord, death himself was slain. It was able to kill natural human life, but was itself killed by the life that is above the nature of man. Death could not devour our Lord unless he possessed a body. Neither could hell swallow him up unless he bore our flesh. And so he came in search of a chariot in which to ride to the underworld. This chariot was the body which he received from the Virgin. In it he invaded death's fortress, broke open its strong room, and scattered all its treasure." Now that's Jesus. That is Jesus. The Lord has abo- I feel like I want to just go. Ooh rah! That's what I want. To, that's what I do right now. The Lord has abolished death. He defeated death. He's. Saint Paul says he's transferred us from the dominion of death into the dominion of his God and Father. Like this is what these are the. This is the consequences of what Jesus has done. I'm going to end with this: the radical consequences of Jesus' victory. This is what we're going to look at. This, by the way, this is a depiction of what's called the harrowing of hell, right? What is Jesus doing on Holy Saturday? He's invading death's domain. He's invading the fortress. He's scattering the, the possessions of the strong man. He's bound the strong man. Look what he's done to, to death. Like, that's what he's done to death. Look, you got Eve and Adam right next to them. And Jesus is going, what's up? That's what he's doing. (laughs) I'm back. Yeah, that's what he's saying. He's invading death's domain. Unbelievable. Okay. Are we doing good so far? Yes? Okay. St. Paul says this, letter to the Colossians, that Christ has disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him. This is Paul to the Colossians. So that word triumph, we, hear, we, we read this we're like, okay, what are you saying, Paul? Uh, like Jesus won, right? Like that what he's saying? Like you triumphed, yay, Jesus won, Easter. No, 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 no. This word triumph has a very technical meaning, just like the word euangelion. In the Greco-Roman world, this is a very particular word. What is a triumph? Well, a triumph in the ancient world was a mega parade in a culture of high pageantry and great parades, right? A triumph only occurred when the, when the general won a certain kind of battle, defeated a certain number of the enemy, gained a certain amount of territory. And this is what would happen. So we hear from, um, I think it's Cicero's account of Julius Caesar, his great battle with uh, the king of Gaul, his like 10-year campaign to, to claim Gaul. Finally, he wins. We hear about Caesar's triumph. This is what happened takes, I think it was eight years. It was eight years. So you've got the king of Gaul. He's brought before Caesar, and he's forced to his knees. And a Roman soldier comes up behind the king of Gaul with a knife and strips the king of Gaul naked, strips him naked in front of the soldiers, in front of his enemy, or in front of his soldiers. And he's placed inside of a cage. They push him to his knees. Before he's placed inside the cage, they present this king of Gaul a golden eagle, which is the emblem of the empire. And they force the king of Gaul to kiss the eagle as a sign of his total defeat. Like I have totally lost, right? He kisses the eagle, he's put in the cage and the parade starts going all the way back to the center of Rome and hanging above the king's head in the cage is a sign that reads, behold the one who used to torment you. He will torment you no longer. That's what it says. They make their way to Rome, and this is what you see. This is what God has done to Satan. This is what Jesus has done to Satan. Jesus is absolutely and utterly unconquerable. He's the ultimate warrior, the ultimate athlete, the ultimate victor. That's who he is. He's crushed Satan and sin and death and hell. Like, hell has no more power over me. But because I have memories, because I have habits, yes, I still cooperate with the powers of sin. But what happened was, I was transferred. You've been transferred by baptism. We'll talk about this. Baptism transfers us from the dominion of that enemy into the dominion of freedom, into the government of the Father, into the Father's house. We become sons and daughters of the Father. Remember a few years ago, that story of those uh, three girls from Cleveland who were kidnapped by Ariel Castro and held in his basement for years, tortured unbelievably. Ten years they were in his basement. He was so cruel to them. He would, he would often go out on search brigades with the family in neighborhoods. And he would come back with flyers, and he would tell the girls, I talked to your mom today. And he would show them a flyer, and he would say, they'll never find you. Unbelievable. Then one day, one of the girls escapes, runs into the arms of a a neighbor. They call the cops, the SWAT team comes, they invade the basement, and there he is, bound up, sitting in the corner, and the girls are released. They were transferred, taken from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light. Friends, Without Jesus, we live in the basement. The world has lived in the basement without Jesus. And because of our own, again, weakness and temptations and habits and memories, we can still choose. We choose to, like, I'm going to choose to go back to the basement. I'm going to choose slavery over freedom. We don't have to, though. We don't have to. What Jesus has done, Jesus has definitively defeated the enemy. Again, back to that image of the gnat, okay, right? So, like, if, or the mosquito. If Satan is a mosquito, lands on my arm, God looked at Satan and just went, this is, it was that easy, because <laughs> he's God, right? <laughs> but where you and I live, we live in this in-between period, this already and not yet, that Jesus has already defeated him, but the kingdom is still yet coming. Right? We live in this already not yet period. We're living in, we're, the period we live in is the period. That's where we live, right? <laughs> That's where we live. The iceberg has hit the Titanic. It hasn't sunk yet. Defeat is certain, but it hasn't happened yet. It has not it hasn't. That's where we live. Back to the image of, of uh, storming the beaches of Normandy. Chris, World War II. Okay, historians say that storming the beaches of Normandy was the the it was the iceberg to the Titanic of the Third Reich, right? It was that was what signaled the like the defeat, but was the war over that day? When did the war end? May 1945. What do we call that day? VE Day, which stands for Victory in Europe. So there was how much time between Normandy and VE Day?
1: 9 months 11 months?
0: 11 months. Right? We live in between Normandy and VE Day.
1: More Americans died after V Day than before.
0: That's a good word. In this sense, for a spiritual analogy. That's what I mean. That's where we live, friends. Like, our task in the meantime as Christians, this is what we're going to talk about the rest of the year. Your task as disciples is to go and rescue people. Right? Rescued people, rescue people. That's the idea. We're, our job as disciples, Jesus has conscripted us into the mission of getting his father's world back. Like That's the goal of the Christian. Right, Your job is not to just simply die and go to heaven. Your job is to help get Jesus' world back, get the father's world back. This is going to be the theme throughout the entire year. N.T. Wright, who's, a, who's an awesome Anglican scripture scholar, he says this, that the Christian life is not about inner self-discovery and private devotion. Let me say that again. The Christian life is not about inner self-discovery and private devotion. The Christian life is about public witness and rescue. Let that sink in. So friends, this is the gospel. This is the story. This is the news that is meant to overwhelm us, right? Created, captured, rescued response There's so much more that we're going to dive into the rest of this year, but we needed this foundation for all of us to be on the same page that this is the story. This is the narrative. This is what we're entering into. This is why you should bother to be Christian. This story, because it's true. It's true. So the prayer is that God, you would be, we would be so overwhelmed by this, what the father has accomplished for us and his son that we wouldn't wait to share this with anybody else. So we're going to end here with some prayers, some uh, petitions, and while we do that, or while we wait, Deacon, do you, there's some in there. Yeah. Okay. Any questions for Father about his presentation? No. Yeah, that's probably good. Vince. Who is the person you were calling right at the end there? Uh, what the the Christian Public Public Witness and Rescue? That one? Yeah. N. T. Wright. He's an amazing Anglican scripture scholar. He's a Anglican Archbishop. Yeah. He's written some amazing things on Paul, the resurrection. Yeah. Awesome, awesome stuff. Any other questions? Wow. Beautiful.
1: Before we pray, let's thank Father for his presentation tonight. Thank you, Father.
0: Here, why don't you pray? Why don't you do those?
1: Okay. Yeah. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So first, first, we're going to pray for, we want to pray for someone, their son, Jeff, that he returns to full communion with the Catholic Church. We pray to the Lord. Lord, Lord hear, hear our, our prayer. prayer. We, want to, we have someone here that wants to pray for their brother-in-law who is having a biopsy of his lung that is, is not serious, but it's still a biopsy. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. For Brian Keel, that he does not get deployed to Iraq for 12 months, we pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord God who heals, heal my family's heart, minds, lives, relationships, and body, we pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. This person wants us to pray for her daughter-in-law, Raquel, that she converts to and embraces our Catholic faith. We pray to the Lord.
0: Lord, hear our prayer. That's it. Loving God, we place these prayers before you, asking that in your goodness and kindness that you answer them in your time and in your way. We ask all this through Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. amen. Well, friends... I ended six minutes early. That's a record. That probably will never happen again. That'll never happen again. I promise. Okay, so, again, reminder, next week, yes, Monday the 10th, we're not meeting down here. We're going to be meeting in the church because next Monday down here is is the Vine, which is the middle school youth group. Um, So we'll be up in the church. Stay in the main nave for me, please. And if you would all... Try and be good Catholics and try and sit in the front. Like, just fill the front pews pews first. I know, that's going to be so hard for some of us. (laughs) Fill the front pews first. Uh, That would be most excellent. Um, Check out the syllabus to to look at the things to read or watch uh, for next next week. Um, Again, if you would like a hard copy of the Becoming Catholic manual and you have not told me that yet, please put your name down on the yellow pad of paper over there, and we'll try and get that to you maybe by next week.
1: Or a catechism, or a Bible.
0: Yeah, all those are free for the taking. You're good. Am I forgetting anything else?
1: You're
0: good. Okay. Good night, everybody. Thanks for being here. Tell your friends. (laughs)